Hulis. He's a pastor up at Redeemer in Encinitas, where I used to work. Um, he uh, he just has a, a really great heart, and he's a good dude, and I'm blessed to call him friend. And so I'm excited for him to come and lead us in the Word as well as in communion. So he gave up his Sunday with his family to be here and cover for Stephen as he's gone. Will you just welcome Jonathan to the stage? Thank you, buddy. Mike Forrest is a pretty good dude too, right? This, this guy's a pretty good dude. Thank you for letting me be with you today. Privileged to come down. As Mike mentioned, the church that we got to serve at, uh, I think Mike and I probably only overlapped for a couple of months, and we fired him as quickly as possible and sent him <coughs> sent him down south. But uh, we got to overlap for a couple of months there, and then he's been here with you, and so we've had a special friendship with the family and privileged to be able to come down. Uh, you guys are in a series that has been entitled Freedom from Comparison. And I think for the bulk of this series, you're going to be looking through Romans chapter 7, the first couple of verses. What we're going to do today is break from Romans chapter 7 and look at a small section in another letter that the exact same author wrote by the name of 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul. In the 2 Corinthians, it's on the exact same theme that comes from Romans 7, but it's a bit of an extended section. And it's on the concept of the Spirit of God and what He does to change the human heart. And there's a distinction, as I'm going to set up later, between the letter and the spirit. The letter of the law and the spirit that breathes life into the law. And so we're going to look at that from 2 Corinthians today. But let me read the text for us. If you want to look along with me, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the first six verses, and then I'm going to show you where we're going. So this is God's word for us. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is God's word for us today. Let me set this up for you. If you're new to Christianity, each of the books in this big thing that we call the Bible, there are 66 books. Most of them have some sort of confusing title or confusing name. Go to the table of contents, hard to pronounce names in the Old Testament, hard to pronounce cities. You might not have known their cities in the New Testament. The bulk of what is written in the New Testament are letters that are written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people much like this who lived in a city. So if we lived 2,000 years ago and Paul wrote us a letter... We would have had first San Diegans and second San Diegans, truly. I mean, that's all it is. You have Romans, you have first and second Corinthians, you have Galatians, you have Philippians. These are all just written to people in cities. And Mike used a great phrase a moment ago. He talked about the concept and some of the things that Harbor is doing is crafting an environment where people can come, especially people who are figuring out church. And honestly, I think that's what's happening in many of these letters is that there are young churches, there are young groups of people, and young not as in age, but young as in they have not been Christian very long. 
They're infant churches, and they're just trying to figure out what it means to walk by faith, to follow Jesus. The historical reality of Jesus transformed everything, and there are these young churches trying to figure out this concept of grace, the blood of Jesus for them, and how it touches every part of their life. And what Paul does in each of those letters is he actually addresses real-time issues. And that's why understanding the context, what happened in that community as they're figuring out faith that Paul or the writer is addressing, what are the principles to pull out, and how does it apply to our life now? So you always have to ask the question of what was going on then and there. And so what I'm going to try to do through the three points that we have, the three points that we have are the concept of inadequacy, competence, and then thirdly, gospel confidence. We're going to try to unpack what was happening and see how it changes our life. All right, so the first part inadequacy. Let's ask the question of context. What is happening? Why is Paul addressing? What aspect of figuring out faith is Paul jumping in on? Uh, The simple reality is that the Corinthian community had a lot of questions. Questions in and of themselves are not a bad thing. Maybe you've been in a religious community where questions were originally frowned upon. All you need to do is believe. Just believe. Don't ask a question. Maybe you've come from that context. Maybe it wasn't a religious context. Let me simply say, I know for sure Harbor believes that questions are a critical part of faith. Questions in and of themselves aren't bad, but what they do is they expose some underlying worry or anxiety or possibly even an assumption. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more in a moment, he's going, I notice you have questions. And in the context of this letter, the bulk of the questions actually have to do with Paul. Seven chapters, till you get to chapters 8 and 9, there seems like there's a little bit of a conversation that's distinct in chapters 8 and 9. The first seven chapters of this book, Paul seems to be addressing the broken relationship that they have had. The reason that's significant is because the Apostle Paul, think about it, if you've been around church for a while, he is one of the pillars of the faith. He wrote the bulk of the New Testament. He's kind of a big deal within Christianity. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in. He plants a little church in the city of Corinth. Paul leaves. He's got other things to do. And while he's gone, all sorts of questions start to arise. And a lot of it had to do with expectations. A lot of it had to do with looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul and saying, that doesn't square with what I expected. You have to then ask, well, what did they expect? What were they expecting when it came to Paul? What would you expect from a guy like Paul if he's the guy who's coming into this church to lead it? What would you expect? Maybe somebody who's got a lot of strength, very intelligent, possibly bravado, maybe the most charismatic person in the room, somebody who's got a lot of abilities. Before we answer that question, let me also ask this question. When it comes not only to the Apostle Paul, but when it comes to Christianity itself, what are your expectations? I mean, what does it mean for you to consider the Christian faith? If you're inside the Christian faith, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? To follow Jesus. How do you define that? And a very important question, of course, is, well, how do the Scriptures define Christianity? What is Christianity about? Well, how do the Scriptures define being a follower of Jesus? A lot of times, concept of expectations is what leads to disillusionment and being disappointed. As an example, a golden watch is only a disappointment if what you're really expecting is 
a watch made out of diamonds. A marriage might be a disappointment if you're expecting a marriage that has no bumps and bruises. And a life can be a disappointment if you're expecting a life that has no twists, it has no turns, it has no disappointments. So let me ask this question then. Are we simply compensating? Is the Apostle Paul maybe even compensating for Christianity, assuming that those people in that original audience simply had too high of an expectation? And then if they were hoping for maybe just 14 karat gold and not 14 karat diamonds, then they would have found what they were looking for as if what they're looking for is simply for God to give them a clean bill of health, a moderately healthy family, one and a half kids, work that you don't hate, And this is what it means for you to follow God and be a Christian. That God's going to kind of just give you surface level happiness, a decent amount of satisfaction. I mean, honestly, when you think about Christianity, what comes to mind for you? Oftentimes, it's driven by expectation. And the theme of expectation and the concept of difference is a huge part of what's going on in this letter. Because what the Corinthians are seeing doesn't square with their expectations of a leader like Paul. Glance at verse 1 with me. Here's what Paul writes in verse 1. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? What is this whole thing about letters of recommendation? In the ancient Near East, there was no phone to pick up. If you're going to make a a trip to a new city or across a small sea, to another region, to another country, you carried with you a third party's recommendation. In some ways, when Mike Forrest introduced me, he was my letter of recommendation to you. I hope we get to know each other, but you don't know me. He essentially could have said, I don't know this guy. He wanted to preach, so let's let him go for it. And that would have been my recommendation. But he said, we've got history. Our families know each other. We serve together. And in some ways, he served as my recommendation. In the ancient Near East, that was a desperate part of leadership. Somebody new comes to town, especially with regards to a new religion. You had to have that third party's recommendation, which validated your character. As a pastor, I get to do letters of recommendation. Maybe you have given a letter of recommendation. Maybe you've requested one. Essentially what that person is doing is says, can you verify my character? Can you substantiate my personhood? Can you write on my behalf to generally a institution of higher learning who wants to know if I'm going to be a good alumnus and then send them lots of money when I'm really successful? Right? But the concept of a letter of recommendation really can be much more modern. Think about your social media account for just a moment. In many ways, it is an online version of a recommendation. People view your profile, whether it's a dating profile, online profile, social media profiles, and they go, is this person worth my time? Is this person worth following? Are they a value add to my life? And then we are a culture obsessed with numbers. SATs, GMATs, bar exams, all the things that many of you, because you're quite successful, have already taken We look at numbers to substantially say, is that person a value add to my life, to my family, to my relationships, and or to my organization? And so Paul is asking the Corinthian church, think of the irony. Do you need a letter of recommendation from me? I think about how personal that is. This is a very personal letter. Paul's putting his heart on the line. He goes, I planted this church. I left for a season. When I left, others crept in and gave you a different version of Christianity. 
And now I'm stepping back in, and you've got all sorts of questions. And the reason they have questions is because Paul didn't lead like those other guys did. Paul didn't have a big entourage like those other people did. And the big issue in the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul suffered more than any of those others did. And when they looked at Christianity and they looked at this figure who was promoting Christianity, they said to themselves, how can this guy who is God's right-hand man, how can he be a true apostle if he suffers so much? See, and their expectations did not square. The Corinthians, this little church, essentially worked within two categories, much like you and I work in. And the two categories are essentially strength versus weakness or power versus inability. They worked with dualities. They're looking at either ors. Let me explain this. On the one hand, you've got strength and power. And these are the people whom the world would characterize as competent. They're adequate. They're very gifted. These are the sort of people who often value self-sufficiency. The concept of transparency is not scary for people like this because all they're going to show you are their strengths. They're never going to show you anything that erodes the illusion of self-sufficiency. On the one hand, you've got power giftedness, strength. On the other hand, you've got weakness and inability. These are people who can't help but value self-deprecation. It's just kind of part of who I am. These are the people who you would probably characterize as incompetent, inadequate, and limited. And hiding is much more common than transparency. There's an author by the name of Scott Sauls in a recent article entitled, Let's Take Off Our Masks, Shall We? Here's what he writes. He says, this theme of deflecting and blaming and hiding has remained with us since Eden. Painfully aware of our own nakedness and shame, we too have become masters at hiding. Instead of fig leaves, we use other more sophisticated strategies to cover the things about ourselves that we don't want others to see. If anyone really gets to know us, if the real truth about us is exposed, surely no one, not even God, will love or desire us. If we let our guards down, we will surely be found out, abandoned, and forgotten. We work within the reality of dualities. You're either good or you're bad. You've either got power or you have an inability. And what Paul is showing this little struggling church that's figuring out faith is that you don't have to work within the dualities. There's actually a strange combination of the two. And what he essentially says is, I don't mind if you see. He's fully transparent, but he doesn't point to his strengths. He doesn't point to his abilities. What he says is, I don't mind if you see all of my weaknesses. And they've never been able to square those. And maybe you and I have never been able to square those. This strange combination of showing your true heart, your brokenness, your incompetence. Paul's essentially saying, all the things you've accused me of, they're essentially true. I'm not as eloquent as they are. I don't lead with the strength that they lead with, those people who came in behind once Paul left. I don't love like they do. I'm very different. And you're right, I suffer a lot more. But what he's doing is he's redefining their expectations. In that same article I mentioned a moment ago, a moment ago Scott Sauls continues. He says, listen closely. With our tendency to hide being so strong and having the Adam and Eve account to explain it, we may be surprised to find an opposite dynamic also occurring in the scriptures. 
Instead of running and hiding and creating masks with which to cover their nakedness, the Bible's most exemplary saints shed their masks in favor of transparency and self-disclosure. Not only do they confess their sins, blemishes, and weaknesses privately to God, but they also openly confess the worst things about themselves to each other and to the world. Unless you think that's not true, a brief overview of just a few of the major biblical figures, one of them being Moses. The moment that God calls that man to be his mouthpiece, what does Moses say? Don't ask me. I can't do it. I'm inarticulate. I can't speak. The first thing that we hear from a man by the name of Isaiah, he's a prophet. The first thing out of his mouth is, woe is me. I'm a man with a broken heart. When he says I have unclean lips, what he's essentially saying is there's something flowing out of my mouth that's coming from my heart. I don't have what it takes to be your man. There's a guy named Jeremiah who he says, I'm much too young to be called. Please don't ask me to do this. There's a guy named King David who pins Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he confesses his pride, ego, and adultery. And I find that so much harder to believe than even the concept of a small guy fighting a giant. If you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, you think about those stories and you say, those must be fables. How would a guy fight a giant? I think this is more unbelievable. Psalm 51, a true confession of what was in David's heart. I think about this guy, he was a messenger named Jonah. He pens a book that reveals his distaste for an entire group of people, his racism and xenophobia. God's calling him to a certain people, and he says, I really hate those people. I don't want to go. I find that more unbelievable than getting swallowed by a whale. See, from beginning to end of the scriptures, what ties all of these people's story together is a simple fact that when God's call comes, human inadequacy became the grounds for God's grace to begin moving in their life. And that's the way it's always worked. That's the way it always will. Human inadequacy is the ground for God to be on the move in the human heart. So Paul is essentially saying, my life is plagued by weaknesses. I've got all of these inadequacies. I am not a super saint. I'm not a super apostle. I'm a broken guy whom God is using. I don't have what they have, but I'll let you see it. You see, he's melding those dualities, good versus evil, power versus weakness. He's bringing them together in the gospel. He's redefining their expectations. So part one, inadequacy. Let me shift to part two. Now what Paul has to do is kind of prove what he's showing them. And here's how he's going to try to do that. Look at verse 4. Competence. In verse 4 he writes, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient, or another word is competent, to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is essentially saying there's only one way for you to understand the paradoxical combination that collides with grace, power and inability coming together. And what he's going to do to understand and unpack that paradox is he's going to take you back to how you relate to God in the first place. Because what he's essentially saying is if I have the audacity to stand in front of you as an apostle of the gospel and show you this picture of strength and weakness and suffering, let me show you where that comes from. 
So he gives them a bit of history. And he roots it in this concept of relationship with God, what the Bible calls a covenant. If you're a note taker, write down a few things right here. Biblically, covenants are the ways in which God has decided to relate to us. This is what the Bible is about from beginning to end. All 66 books hinge on not a treaty, not a contract with stipulations that can be broken, easily broken. You didn't keep your end of the contract, so there's no more relationship. There's this concept of a covenant. And from God's perspective, what a covenant means is that the relationship can't be broken even if the terms aren't met. Think on that. From God's perspective, when he enters into covenant with us, what he's saying is this thing cannot be broken. The relationship will not come to an end, even if the terms aren't met. It does not mean that there aren't ramifications for this concept of relationship breaking, covenant breaking, but it does mean God guarantees that he's going to be faithful to us, even when we're not faithful to him. And so to understand what he's talking about in this new covenant, let me give you a very brief background on the old covenant. The old covenant started when Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. They've been in bondage for over 400 years. They thought God was asleep. They thought God did not care. And all of a sudden, God shows up through this man, Moses, brings them out with a powerful right hand. He's a mouthpiece of God, even though he's inadequate. He brings the people out, and God has a unique relationship with this man named Moses. He invites him to the top of a mountain. I would not have wanted to go to the top of that mountain that day. There's fire, and there's brimstone, and there's hail, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, because God is showing up. And what he's giving Moses a glimpse of was his character. He's showing him holiness and glory and justice and love, all these things at one time. But then he begins to speak to Moses, and Moses begins to write down. He's writing quickly. Maybe he's chiseling. I don't know. But what he does is he summarizes everything that God is saying about who he is, what he loves, what he's like, what he hates. And he summarizes it in Ten Commandments. And Moses comes off the mountain, and I guess somewhat like this, Moses is probably speaking to the people, and he's articulating to them all of the laws and all the decrees and all the commands that God has just spoken. And in Exodus 24, as Moses reads them all to the people, they reply with one voice, I quote, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Basically, they say, sounds great. We're in. All that you spoke to us. And so Moses says, okay, if you're in, then I'm going to ratify the covenant. Every time there's a covenant made in the Bible, there's a sign that accompanies it. And the sign of the old covenant was blood. And so what Moses does is he takes an animal sacrifice, probably fills up a massive bowl of blood, and he dips something in it, and he begins to essentially do this to the crowd. Seems, picture that for a moment. The people in the front row, completely covered. I mean, you'd have been saying, I'm so glad I'm in the back. Man, look at those people in the front. They are covered. And Moses would have been like, oh, yeah. And he's like whoosh, trying to get everybody with a little bit of blood on them. The point of the blood as red and gory as it would have been, was to show the magnitude of the relationship, the heaviness, the weightiness of covenant that they were entering into. And basically what they said is, this is ratified in blood, not yours, innocent animals. And so the blood would have been a reminder when they went home, look at the blood. It reminds me of this thing, this relationship, this agreement that God has with us. But the people's optimistic. We will follow and we will obey all that you have spoken. You know how long that lasted? Less than a day. We're all in. 
less than 24 hours. They couldn't keep the written decrees, the will of God. And the reason was, and Paul says it here, the reason was is because it was the will of God written on a stone. And this is why Paul calls it a what? In verse 6, he calls it a letter. He goes, this was the declared will of God. It shows you what he loves. It shows you what he hates. It shows you what he's like. It gives you a glimpse of his character. There's only one God. Serve him with all that you are. But you can't even do it. Because the law is just uttered. It's just spoken. It's just written. It's just chiseled. It's just on stone. It hadn't yet gotten to the human heart. If you are inside or outside of Christianity, let me say that rule following and obedience has never ever change the human heart. Ever. It didn't change their heart. Out of all the nations on the face of the earth at the time, Israel was the one nation who had the written and declared word of God given to them that accompanied them wherever they went. But the history of Israel in so many ways is the history and the trajectory of the human heart. That's what Israel's history is all about. Basically, you go, what is the human heart going to do next? Oh, they've got the will of God. They've got the word of God. What's the human heart going to do next? Because it's just written on a letter. And what ends up happening as you go through Israel's history is they run. They run away from him. They don't run closer to him. They run further and further and further away. God enters into covenant. He goes, it's not going to be broken, but you break it over and over. They broke it over and over. So much so that the result, as you get near the end of the Old Testament, is a concept of exile that God allows a foreign country to have its way, which is essentially God's way. And he pushes the people of Israel out of the promised land and into exile. And even, friends, on the brink of exile, God speaks to that young man who said, I'm too young. God speaks to that young man by the name of Jeremiah, and he guarantees and alludes to a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new agreement that would not be external, a letter, but would be written on the human heart. And it's from Jeremiah 31. If you want to look on the screen, we'll read this beautiful section of promise. This is where God speaks first of the new covenant. On the brink of exile, God says to his people, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you're paying attention between the old covenant and the new covenant, not one aspect of God's moral law, his preference, the things he loves, none of that changes. The only thing that changes between old and new is the palate where the law was written. Where it was once written on stones, it now begins to be written on the human heart. And not by the will of man or the will of woman, but by the will and the power of the Spirit of God who makes a promise on the brink of exile, a new agreement's coming. 
and that which you cannot pull off, but that which you were created for, the beautiful, perfect will of God in your life, I'm going to begin writing and whispering it into the human heart myself. When those same promises are made through the prophet Ezekiel, he adds, listen, and I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit that I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new heart that goes from being stony to beating again in the way that it was designed to beat. And what happened, remember, in the old covenant was that after the law was given, after they got a glimpse of who this God was, Moses had to do the bloody thing. He had to take the bowl and he had to sprinkle it because every covenant has a sign. And in the new covenant, there's a sign as well, but it has nothing to do with an animal. It has nothing to do with your blood or my blood. It has everything to do with the blood of Jesus the Son of God. Remember in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is having his last meal with his closest friends and as he takes a cup of wine in his hand, he tells those men, the cup that is poured out for you, this is the new covenant being signed and sealed in my blood. Essentially what he's saying is, remember in those old ceremonies, everybody got bloody? What he's saying is in the new covenant, it's just me who gets bloody. It's just me. And what this meant, friends, is that Jesus, the law keeper, was going to die in the place of you and me, the lawbreakers, so that we could be treated as if we were perfect like him. And when the Holy Spirit begins to make that story palpable and real, when you stop striving for religious perfection, things that you want God to notice, the things that you're doing at work and in your family, when you start to embrace the concept of inadequacy, the Spirit of God starts to move in the human heart. It's the way it's always worked. And when he does that, He starts to change you so that you become more human. You get to do the things you were designed to do. God wired you. He breathed life into you. You can either live on the fuel of self or you can live on the fuel of him. And he goes, the moment you live on the fuel that I provide you, all of these things called sin, they're forgiven. All of this concept of self at the center, it changes. And you know what you get to do? You get to love a neighbor. You get to work towards equality and justice because you don't just care about your agenda anymore. You actually get to be human. And this is how God wired you. This is what it's for. So look again at verse 1. Go back full circle. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In light of all the questions of Paul's legitimacy, all the pointing of fingers, you suffer too much, all of his inadequacy, he says, I know you need a letter of recommendation, but what I want you to do is look in the mirror. And he points to the beautiful reality of human letters. And he says, we didn't affect that change in you. That's not about us. That's not about them. It's not about anybody else. This is what God is doing. He told you a long time ago. He was sending the Holy Spirit to change human hearts. Look in the mirror. 
See, in the very space of the old, not something from the outside coming in, but from the very space of the old, people's lives had started to change. And he goes, I don't need to be the letter of recommendation. Look what God has done. Look at what he continues to do. And lean into the promise of the Holy Spirit and who he is. Let me take you to the last part, inadequacy, competence, and really the last part is a challenge from gospel confidence. What does gospel confidence look like? Remember our series is the end of comparison, freedom from comparison. Paul could have been enslaved by it his entire life, but he's explaining how you can live within a different reality and not the duality. So let me get to the last part. What does gospel confidence even look like? And I have a quote from Oswald Chambers. He writes, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and his grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. I think this is often why we struggle with Christianity. Because as I look at this room, honestly, this is a room of gifted people. This is a room of somebodies. You're educated, pretty good looking, very good looking, gifted in multiple ways, good with people, hardworking. You're going places. And what the gospel calls you to consider is the concept of stepping in to the space of being a nobody. Because that's how God always works. That's who God always uses. Who has the ability to step away from their gifts, their power, their strength? Not that as if you need to leave it behind, but such that it doesn't define you. Who has the ability to do that? And the reality is nobody, nobody can do that apart from somebody who gets an eyeful and a heartful of Jesus who steps out and gives up his strength He gives up his power, and he serves, and he becomes a nobody. Nobody knew his name for 30-plus years of a 33-year life. He was nobody, and he died as a nobody. But it's God using that expression of grace, using that man's desire to... uh, please his father more than himself. It radicalized human history and it is the ingredients for the new covenant coming to life. I challenge you to think about it. What does it mean for you to step into the place where grace is the dominant principle of your life? I am hardwired to earn. You probably are too. To prove, to merit. But Christianity says you gotta let God prove and merit. And it takes community. You will fall and fall fast on your own. But in community, there's a potential to whisper to each other's hearts, remember the Spirit of God writing this on your life, and then to bring it to life together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of the new covenant, the new promise and the new agreement that's not contingent upon my obedience even though my obedience is a huge part of relating to you. But it's not why you love me. I don't need to perform as a husband or a father to get your affection. 
I don't need to be super religious. I don't have to be perfect because somebody was and then his, his blood was sprinkled on me. And he is the sign. Jesus is the sign that the new covenant is real. So Lord, would you open our hearts to the reality of the Spirit of God coming in and breathing new life. You want to give us a whole lot more than surface level happiness. You want to change us. And law keeping, while it's a part of following you, it's not where it starts. It starts with Jesus laying down his life, being the perfect law keeper. So may we breathe the rest and the Sabbath and the joy of Christ's death for us. And may it change us. In Jesus' name, amen.